We are in our second week of our summer sermon series through some of the parables of Jesus. And before we read our text this morning, I wanted to make a full disclosure to you. My sermon title is taken from the title of someone else's sermon, Charles Spurgeon. And I did this because it, uh, I think, captures the essence of my sermon, but also because I encourage you to go out and find Charles Spurgeon's sermon with this same title on this same text uh, this afternoon or in the days to come as you continue to meditate uh, on this text. So now let us go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, send us your Holy Spirit, we pray. And as we read your Holy Word, we might rightly hear and obey. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, for we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our, from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This morning we are looking at another set of twin parables from the 13th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Again, consisting of just three verses. And just as we discovered last Sunday with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven... Jesus also paired these two parables together to make one general point. And his point, I think, is fairly clear. Both of these parables express the infinite worth of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is like a valuable treasure, a rare and precious jewel. Jesus wants us to understand the all-surpassing worth of the inheritance that the citizens of God's kingdom have come to possess in him. But just as we saw last week, we should not misjudge the brevity of the parables for any lack of depth and meaning. There is much that is being expressed here about Jesus and his kingdom. And so we can begin by noting that while these parables act together to reinforce the main point that Jesus is teaching, each of the parables in this pairing have their own individual aspects that are being emphasized. And then they work together to provide a fuller and clearer picture of what Jesus is teaching. So let's begin by looking at how these two parables differ. In the first parable, we have a man who discovers a treasure hidden in a field. 
This, by the way, was not an unlikely or unheard of scenario, as it might seem to be today. In Jesus' day, it was very common to make use of the ground to hide valuables. There weren't formal banks in Jesus' day in which to deposit money. Further, it was a time in which anyone's backyard could become a battlefield and his house could be looted at any moment. Therefore, the Jewish rabbis had a saying, there is only one safe repository for money, the earth. So finding buried treasure was not out of the question. In fact, one can find a number of examples from ancient history of individuals finding buried treasure, just as it is presented here in this parable. But what we need to note here, which might not be immediately obvious to us, is this man wasn't out looking for treasure. He isn't treasure hunting. What the parable intends for us to understand is that this man is just going about his work when he unintentionally discovers this treasure. And perhaps he is tilling the field or digging a well or planting a shrub. It doesn't really matter. We don't know what he was doing. What matters is that he unexpectedly finds this treasure. And we will find in just a moment that this is in stark contrast to this second parable of this pairing. The reality is that Jesus is opening our eyes to is that there might be some who aren't looking for God's kingdom, who aren't necessarily longing for God's kingdom, but nonetheless are struck by it, captured by it, enamored by it when they come across it. And discovering its worth, seek to make it their own. This was my story. When I was 16 years old, I came upon God's kingdom and the treasure of God's kingdom. It was January of my junior year in high school. I was invited by a friend of mine to a retreat at my own church. I'd become a member of that church through a confirmation process in sixth grade, but as soon as my parents quit making me go, I quit going. And I can't tell you how many times I attended after officially becoming a member of the church, but it wasn't many. And here I was being invited to this church by a guy who wasn't even a member. It would be humorous, but it really isn't funny. I was lost. And I really didn't even know it. If someone had asked me about my faith in Jesus Christ, I would have said, of course I am a Christian. And I certainly didn't sign up for that retreat because I was searching to become a Christian. I really didn't even know that I wasn't one. I just wanted to hang out with my friends who were all going to be at this retreat. But God had a different plan for me. That weekend, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, opened my eyes to my poverty, my neediness, and to the beauty of what he had done for me in Jesus Christ. He opened my ears to the remedy of my sinful condition in the separation of my separation from him. And he softened my heart to joyfully receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I can't tell you exactly what was said to bring me to this place of realization and redemption, but I can tell you that the gospel was proclaimed in a way that I had never heard it before. In a way that I had never been capable of hearing it before. And I responded. I responded by bowing my knees and my heart to my Lord and my Savior. Confessing my need for him, placing my faith in him, and submitting my life to him. What happened that weekend undeniably and irrevocably changed the trajectory of my life. All praise and glory be to God for his goodness to me. From my perspective, I had stumbled upon this great treasure of infinite value. There was another young man who also seemingly stumbled upon the great treasure of the gospel. This man spoke of his adolescent years as being a time of great darkness and despair. But one cold January morning, when he was 15 years old, this young man got up and decided to attend worship. There was a blizzard outside, so he didn't make it to the church that he intended to go to. Instead, he ducked into a little primitive Methodist chapel where he found only a few people, a dozen or so, gathered for worship. The preacher didn't even make it to worship that morning, probably because of the snowstorm. So a layman got up to preach. You must be prepared in and out of season, right, to proclaim the gospel. It might happen to one of you. Anyhow, this young man described this layman as a poor man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of the sort, and he spoke of his preaching in a quite unflattering way. As this young man recalled, his text was, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, verse 22. And he kept repeating that verse because he had nothing else to say. Nor was a preacher even pronouncing the words correctly. But then, something about this young man who was a stranger in this congregation caught the preacher's eye. And suddenly, he looked at the young man and he said to him directly, Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. And then he shouted at him, young man, look to Jesus, look, look, look. I did. I did, the young man recalled. And then and there, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. This young man was Charles Spurgeon, who would become one of the most influential pastors and preachers of the 19th century and really in all of Christian history. And it was there in a primitive Methodist chapel, listening to a sermon delivered by a layperson that this young man who would become known as the prince of preachers discovered the treasure of surpassing worth and laid hold of it. 
Now, I don't tell you those two conversion stories to compare myself to Charles Spurgeon as a pastor or preacher, but simply to highlight that we were both young men who discovered the great worth of the kingdom of God very unintentionally. We weren't necessarily looking for it, but we both came upon it, and we came upon it through the preaching of God's word. I hope that you will see the contrast in our stories as well, though. God, in his great providence and wisdom, has ordained that the least in his kingdom and the greatest in his kingdom who have found his kingdom sometimes find it in the most unexpected way. This is what the parable of the man in the field is drawing to our minds. Not all who find the preciousness of what God has offered to us in Jesus Christ are looking for it. God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And dearly beloved, this should serve as an encouragement to us that just because someone isn't looking for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that they won't be laid hold of by God through the proclamation of the gospel. There is power in God's word, amen? I hope that I made that much clear last Sunday in the exposition of the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And by the way, we should note in Spurgeon's story that it also doesn't take someone who has been trained in the art of preaching to proclaim the gospel in a way that it can be heard and received. It only takes one who is willing to spread God's word. This is why I encourage you last Sunday to spread the gospel broadly. God promises us that his word will not return to him void. Our role is not to judge whether or not someone is fit to receive his word, whether the person is a good candidate to become a follower of Jesus, nor is our role to ensure that someone will accept God's word. Our role is to merely be an instrument of its distribution. We are seed broadcasters. It isn't the seed broadcaster's job to ensure the fertility of the soil on which the seed is thrown, but simply to spread the seed then we must trust that God is faithful in bringing forth a harvest, drawing men and women to himself through his word. Now, the second parable presents us with an altogether different scenario. It tells of one who has been searching diligently to find the treasure, who has devoted his life to finding it. In this case, it is a pearl. In Jesus' day, pearls held a strange fascination with men. They could be compared in many ways to the way in which diamonds are valued today. In antiquity, pearls were the costliest and most highly sought-after gem, perhaps in part because of their rarity. But they were also desired as the quintessence of beauty and purity. So whereas the man in the field from the first parable seemingly stumbles upon the treasure, the merchant in the second parable has spent his life pursuing this one perfect pearl, searching high and low, far and near for this, the most precious of all earthly objects. And the parable reveals that his search is not in vain. 
We can think of examples of those who have sought the Lord and finally discovered the pearl of great value that they have been earnestly seeking after. In my mind, one person in particular stands out in church history, Martin Luther. Luther was known to have said that if ever a man could be saved by monkery, that man was he. His devotion to know the Lord and his all-surpassing worth is well documented. He sought after the Lord tirelessly and intentionally because he was troubled in his soul by his own sin. And the language in scripture of God's righteousness, especially in the letters of the Apostle Paul. You see, Luther understood God's holiness and God's call for us to be holy. And he yearned to know how this chasm between his sinfulness and God's holiness could be filled. And so he spoke of persistently and most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul meant at this point of God's righteousness. Day and night he meditated on Paul's words until at last. His eyes and his mind were open to the truth that God in his great mercy grants righteousness as a gift to those who simply place their faith in Jesus Christ. All of his searching and straining was finally rewarded as the infinite greatness of the gospel became crystal clear to him. And Luther recalls discovering this truth, saying, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. How beautiful is that? After all the searching. That which had been long desired finally appeared in all of its beauty and brilliance. And Jesus assures us that those like Luther who search diligently for God and his word will find him. Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is that teaching in parable form. And it should be an encouragement. To any of us who have felt the way to God to be long and difficult, who have despaired, wondering if this journey might in the end prove to be futile. Push on, dearly beloved, push on. The search is not in vain. Do not lose heart. The pearl is there. And it will be found by all those who seek it. Continue to pursue God and his kingdom. But these parables are not merely about the circumstances by which two men discover the infinite worth of God's kingdom. The parables begin differently because our roads and circumstances that bring us into contact with God's grace in Jesus Christ are varied. But we would seriously miss the point of the parables if we fail to notice that what begins uniquely ends in an identical fashion. Upon finding the treasure and the pearl, the men respond in like manner. They immediately recognize its value. And they determine to make it their own by any and all cost. In both cases, we are told that the finder of the treasure and pearl went and sold all he had to acquire it. And this, this is perhaps the greater lesson for us in these parables. 
for this is the lesson which is twice repeated. Have we recognized the value of this treasure that has been offered to us in Jesus Christ? And have we sought by any and all means to possess it? Now, I understand. I understand that in our Reformed sensibilities, we might immediately feel some repulsion to this message. Citizenship in God's kingdom comes to us free of charge which is good because there is no way we could ever afford it. We are utterly incapable of living a life pleasing to God by our own merits or appeasing his wrath toward our sin. But salvation doesn't cost us a thing, right? We are saved by grace alone and through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is a gift. There's absolutely nothing we can do to buy our way into God's kingdom. Everything that is needed has already been provided for us, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for us. We believe this, right? I hope so. And we believe this, and because we believe this, anything that hints in any way toward a righteousness based on works gets our theology censors tingling. So let me make something very clear. These parables are not proclaiming that we are saved by any work of our own. They are not teaching that we can buy our way into God's kingdom. We have to interpret them within the whole of Scripture. And Scripture unequivocally teaches us that what has been offered to us in Jesus Christ is completely free. But that does not mean, here's the big but... That does not mean that what has been offered to us is cheaply received. Unfortunately, for far too long, what has been delivered here in America is a watered-down, cheap gospel which presents the Christian life as requiring nothing of us. Just come as you are and remain as you are. As one biblical commentator put it, the alleged ease of Christianity is offered as an inducement of its acceptance. In an effort to present the gospel in what is considered to be an appealing manner, Christianity has been sold in this country as nothing more than an articulation of belief in Jesus. And not only does this belief in Jesus have no content behind it, it says nothing of the transformation that true faith in Jesus Christ produces in the life of the believer. But this cheap gospel is not the message of these parables because it is not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just one more thing that we can add to our lives. He's not one more influencer we can follow on social media. He's not one more option to which we can find some sense of strength or solace or purpose in this life. He is not one more item to add to our resume. He is our all in all. In him is all we need. In him is all we desire. And while salvation is offered to us free of charge, there is in fact a cost of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. The message of these parables is that having found the greatest treasure, Jesus Christ, there is in response a decisive selling off of things. 
The men in the parables aren't told to sell everything they have. They just do it. Because the treasure tells them everything they need to know. You see, it might seem to us at first glance that these men are making a great sacrifice to acquire this treasure that each has found. But I don't think that Jesus means to present either of these hypothetical men as thinking for a moment that they are making any sacrifice at all. In fact, in the parable of the hidden treasure, we are told that the man in his joy went and sold everything he had that he might buy that field to acquire the treasure. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He states, he is more glad to get rid of all of his possessions than ever he was to obtain them. He was more glad to get rid of all of his possessions than ever he was to obtain them. These men know. That what they have found is worth far more than anything they could ever give up. Therefore, the focus is not on what is lost, but what is gained. And what, it, what is gained is of infinite value. The Apostle Paul understood this. He wrote to the church in Philippi, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul knew that salvation was a gift from God, but he also knew that salvation was a gift that was acquired in faith. And faith is not merely saying that you believe in Jesus. No, it is much more than that. It is finding in Jesus your all in all and making a decision to place all of your trust in him at the expense of leaving behind all that you had previously invested yourself in. I love what James Montgomery Boyce wrote in, his, in this regard about these parables. He writes, Having recognized the value of their discovery, and having sold everything in their desire to have it, the man who discovered the treasure and the merchant who discovered the pearl then made their purchase. They acquired that on which their desires had been set. That purchase speaks of individual appropriation. It tells us that salvation does not consist merely in seeing the value of Christ's work and wanting it for oneself. It stresses that Christ must actually become ours by faith, which is the means of appropriation. So dearly beloved, we need to understand something here. If we want the treasure of infinite value, then it's there free for the taking but acquiring it in faith does require us to give up some things if we are to receive this treasure by placing our faith in jesus christ then we must not be looking to anyone or anything else for our righteousness for our hope 
for our comfort, for our security, for our joy, for our pleasure, for our purpose. In order to get the best, you have to abandon the rest. Let me say that again. In order to get the best, you have to abandon the rest. The reality is that in the economy of our lives, every decision we make has a cost associated with it. Every decision to choose one thing, we are making a decision to give up other options. And we make decisions based on where our affections lie. Jesus taught that where your treasure is, there there your heart will be also. Therefore, our decisions speak to what it is our hearts truly value. In choosing to place faith in Christ and gain salvation, we are necessarily giving up placing our faith elsewhere. This is the cost of faith in Christ. So you can't, for instance, gain Christ while simultaneously holding tightly to your sin. These things are incompatible. You can't have Christ and your sins. How do you gain eternal delight if you spend your days pursuing temporal pleasures that lead you away from God? This is why Jesus tells us that if we want to find our lives, then we must, for his sake, lose them. We must put to death the old life with all of its sin if we want to live a life of righteousness in the power of the resurrection. These parables are challenging us to recognize what is our supreme treasure and then to sell off the rubbish from our lives that keep us from him. So dearly beloved, what are you willing to sell off? What are you willing to sell off to gain Christ? Are you willing to sell off your pride and self-righteousness? Are you willing to sell off your burning anger and your need for vengeance? Are you willing to sell off your desire for worldly comfort and security? Are you willing to sell off your lust and sensuality? Are you willing to sell off your need to be in control and to pursue your own personal agenda and plan for your life? Are you willing to sell off your reputation? Are you willing to sell off your desire to gain and store up material wealth. A decision to place faith in Jesus Christ is a decision to leave these things behind. Are these things too great a price to pay for inheriting the kingdom of God? If so, says voice, You are not the man of Christ's parable who finds the treasure and sells all that he has to have it. You are not the merchant who trades off everything to possess the great pearl. You have not even properly seen the value of what you are rejecting. Dearly beloved, do you see it? Do you want it? Are you willing to make a decisive decision to acquire it? We have been offered a great bargain in Jesus Christ. The treasure of infinite worth has made himself available to us through faith. If you want him, he is yours. It's the offer of a lifetime. And all it will cost you is your sin. 
All you have to do is give up temporal pleasures to gain the eternal joy and delight of God's kingdom. Dearly beloved, I urge you, don't look at the treasure and believe it's too costly. Don't turn from it and walk away. Turn from your sin and lay hold of him who has laid down his life for you. Give up your sin. Give up your death and gain righteousness and eternal life. Sell off all that does not last. It is a joy. And I can assure you of this. You will not one day find yourself disappointed at what proved to be a bad bargain. As Boyce says, you will not find yourself coming back with your treasure or pearl hoping to get your property back. No, no, no. All the more, each and every day and forever more, it will be confirmed that you have received the deal of a lifetime. And may it be so for each of us. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to your all-surpassing worth. Lord, that we would lay down our worldly treasures and that we would passionately pursue your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we find joy forevermore. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be blind to that. That our hearts wouldn't be hardened to that. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.